God, thank you for tonight. Uh, Lord, uh, we are, uh, God, we're here tonight to hear from you. And God, our desire is that you would speak. God, that you would allow us to hear what you have in store for us tonight. Uh, God, we, uh, we're busy and uh, often we uh, are distracted. And we've got a lot of things that are going through our minds and our hearts. And so for the next few minutes, God, would you help to settle our hearts and our minds from whatever may be happening outside of this room and help us to focus on you and your word here for the next few minutes. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would help us, uh, God, to reset, uh, Lord, with everything that's happening uh, around us culturally, uh, maybe personally. Uh, sometimes it's good for us just to reset, and so tonight, would you help us to see that? God, we pray that you'd speak, give us eyes to see and ears to hear for your glory tonight, in Jesus' name, amen. So we, uh, we're journeying over the next few weeks, I believe we'll be six weeks into reset, and so we'll have an opportunity to look at that and uh, see what that looks like. Uh, for the next few weeks, but we'll talk about a few different things that often we find ourselves involved in, um, and we tend to focus sometimes on the wrong things, and so the challenge for us over the next six weeks will be to reset, uh, and at the end, we'll talk about that, you know, part of that is resetting our expectations, and so tonight as we get started, um, I want to ask you a question. What if what if I told you that every one of us were simply one step away from living a completely different life? Think about that for just a second. Every single one of us in this room are one step away, just one, from living a completely different life. So I got a couple of examples in my own life. Uh, several years ago, Melly and I had just been married not very long, and so uh, we were trying to figure out, you know, God, what is it that you have in store for us? What does this look like? And so this was 20 years ago, and uh, which is strange because I'm only 25, and uh, so we were... Uh, we had this chance to move to Alabama, and so we didn't really know what that looked like. And so we said, sure, you know, we're young and married, and so we didn't really know, um, you know, what we should or shouldn't do. And we were pretty new at following Jesus, and so, you know, our discernment meter wasn't the best. And uh, so we decided to do it. So we got a U-Haul and, and a trailer, you know, to put everything in, and so we load the house up. We were renting a house, and so we loaded the house up, and we got it all packed, and we were going to sleep, and the next morning we were going to get up, and we were going to drive away from Mississippi, and we were going to become Alabama residents. And so that night, we're at the house, and it's just, you know, with me, I was unsettled with it, and it just didn't feel right, and but, you know, I knew Melanie was excited, and so, I, you know, I didn't say a whole lot about it. Well, that night I said, look, I just got to level with you. I just don't think this is the right thing to do. And she was like, oh, I'm so glad you told me that. I don't either. And so here, you know, we're not thinking we should do it, but both of us are trying to power through. And so we, we didn't. We canceled everything. And so, you know, there were some people unhappy about that, but, but we canceled. We said, you know, it's, it just doesn't feel right. We're not doing that. And so fast forward about 10 years, uh, we were given another opportunity. And so I was uh, contacted by this company, and so they wanted me to 
move uh, to Georgia. And uh, so I, we went to a conference this last week, and we were over near Atlanta, and we actually passed, passed the exit for this town, and so it made me think about it again. But. So we, we had this chance to move to Georgia. And so on Friday they called me and, hey, you know, on Monday we'd like for you to be here, and this is the deal and the situation, yada, yada, yada. And so we'd like for you to move to Georgia. And so it just, I was just wrestling with it. And, you know, is this the right thing to do? Is this where we should go? And, you know, you, most of you know my story. We, we did move to Virginia. So, you know, we're, we're very apt to do those things. Uh, but it just didn't feel right. So I, I could have been a diehard Atlanta Braves fan, right? Or I could have been a diehard Alabama fan. How terrible would that have been, Right? I didn't even plan on telling that joke, and it just worked out so well there. Uh, but, you know, we all can tell those stories, right? You could say, maybe it's not you moving to another state, but maybe it's a decision that you made. Maybe in your life you said, well, I did this, and I'm telling you, that was the worst mistake I've ever made. And you've lived with that decision ever since. Or maybe you'd say, you know, like my story, you'd say, man, it was great that we did not do that because we would have ended up the Crimson Tide followers, and that's just not good, right? But we, we look at that. Here's the reality. Every one of us are just one step away from a completely different life. Now, we'll talk about it in a minute, but, you know, maybe your mind says, well, you know, well, what, what do you mean exactly? You see, in the blink of an eye, life can change, whether it's tragedy whether it's decisions that you made, whether it's sin that is present in all of our lives, that in the, in the blink of an eye, in one second, we could completely be moving in a, a different direction. It's a thought that we would certainly all agree tonight that is very sobering, yet maybe even potentially encouraging. Because you see, if you find yourself here tonight and you say, I do not like where I'm at in life. I don't like my circumstances. I don't like my job. I don't like, you know, my family or whatever is happening. I need something different. The reality is you are just one step away from a completely different life. It's a reminder for us that all things have the potential to derail us in a moment's notice. And so if you're not where you're at, be encouraged. There is hope. You see, our spiritual tendencies are to guard against the reality that life can change in the blink of an eye. And so what do we do? We hedge against it. So oftentimes we take extreme measures to insulate ourselves against tragedy. Or we insulate ourselves against circumstances that may not be favorable for us. So what people often do is they take things into their own hands and attempt to surround themselves with situations and circumstances that they can control. Unfortunately, that is not reality. Tonight we're going to explore the danger of the reality that everything can change and discuss, well, can we guard against it? What does that look like? You see, the Pharisees were really good at this. They were really good at hedging. You know, as you read your New Testament, you read through the Gospels, the Pharisees became a very prominent group of people. The Pharisees were really good at hedging or insulating. The name Pharisee is believed to 
have meant in Hebrew uh, derived from the word separate, that they would be different. You see, what happened when the Pharisees came into favor is that uh, God has been quiet for a while, okay? You read the last of uh, the last book in the Old Testament, and for 400 years, what we call the intertestamental period, there had been silence from God. No prophets, no prophecy, no word from, from the Lord. And so they're trying to figure out what does this look like. And so they, for several hundred years now, have no national identity. We went through a series uh, called Under Authority, and we talked about how Judah and Israel lost all of their uh, authority, and they ended up losing their nation. And so now the Israelites find themselves with no national identity, and their favor in society has gone. Sound familiar? Culture had become completely overrun, and Yahweh worship was replaced by polytheism, which is worshiping multiple gods. And so this is where the Israelites found themselves. It's 400 years since God has spoken. And in God's silence, the Pharisees, those that were separate, decided that we got to double down, guys. God has not spoken for 400 years. And so people are asking questions. What is God saying? What should we do? Our nation has been destroyed. We no longer are a nation anymore. And where people scattered about, the Babylonians and the Assyrians have come in, and they've obliterated our culture. And so what do we do? And so they decided, here's what we do. We make it impossibly difficult to talk to God. We create laws. We come up with ways in which we can be burdensome. There were three, 613 laws, 365 which were negative, 248 which were positive. And so they created this system to which they wanted to force everyone to abide by their rules and their systems and their traditions. You see, silence oftentimes we believe is a confirmation. You see, in Psalm 50, Asaph writes a poem here, and he's talking about the indictments that God has against His people. Specifically, he was indicting them for their formalism in worship and their hypocrisy in living. And this is what he writes in Psalm 50, verse 18. It'll come up on the screen. I'll put the reference on your handout. He says, if you see a thief and you're pleased with him, or you keep company with adulterers, you give your mouth free reign for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and you speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. He says, these things you have done and I have been silent. You look around our nation today and you see all of the things that could certainly be identified in what Asaph is writing in Psalm 50. And we would say that it seems as though God has been silent. And he says this in the latter part. He says, you thought, God says, that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and I lay the charge before you. 
You see, Asaph has selected several examples of the wickedness of the nation of Israel. And while they appeared to be righteous, they tolerated and took part in theft and adultery and slander. And so the principle that we would see that's for us tonight is this, is that we shouldn't confuse God's patience with God's approval. You see, as we look around the world today, and trust me, you don't want to look around today, and you see all the things that are taking place, and we would say, is God silent in this moment? Does this mean that God's allowing this because God approves of that in your own life and the sin in which you participate in? And you say, well, I haven't been called, or I haven't been stopped, or God hasn't done anything. Listen to me tonight. Do not confuse the silence of God with the approval of God. God's silence does not mean that He agrees with your actions. You see, the Pharisees thought God must agree with us because God hasn't said anything. In Jesus' day, being a Pharisee, well, that was a badge of honor. And so if you could become a Pharisee, I mean, remember Paul when he he said, look, you want to talk about resumes, check mine out. He said, I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees. And so here's this badge of honor that everyone aspired to become a Pharisee, someone who was good at the religious system. You see, the Pharisees regarded oral tradition as authoritative, even more authoritative as written law, a belief that was very distinguishing for them. And so as I began to think about Pharisees, I thought to myself, now, no one who's here on Wednesday night is a Pharisee, right? But, hey, you might know some. So I thought, let's make a list. What does it look like for me to be a modern-day Pharisee? How can I be a modern-day Pharisee today? What are some characteristics of that? Well, I wrote down a couple things. They're on your handout here. How about this? Number one. We'll get there in a minute, maybe. You live in a circle of clones. I'm not sure if it's going to come up. You live in a circle of clones. All right. Okay. So you live in a circle of clones. What does that mean? If you are a Pharisee, here's what you've done. You have surrounded yourself with people who are just like you. And anybody who's not like you or anybody who disagrees with you, you know what you do? You exclude them. You don't have anything to do with them. Anybody who challenges you, out. That's what the Pharisees did. They ruled by authority. And anything that they said was greater than written law. And so, you know, number one, if you are a Pharisee, maybe you live in a circle of clones. Number two, you care more about what people think than what God thinks. Now, I I mean, if this stings, it's in love. But I want you to think about this. That you you care more about what people think than what God thinks. The Pharisees were more interested in praying in public than praying in private. They wanted people to see what they were doing instead of being who God wanted them to be. Number three, you place personal preference over biblical standards. These are signs that you might be a Pharisee. Now look, there's hope, all right? So don't be mad at me. We're going to get through this. 
Number three, you place personal preference over biblical standards. That the Bible is subjective as long as it agrees with what you want it to agree with. Number four, you rarely admit when you're wrong. Have you watched The Chosen? Have you seen that, anybody? You've seen that, right? The, the Chosen, you know, depicts, you know, kind of meat on the bones, if you will, some things that, you know, they take some liberties, editorial liberties or whatever you want to call them. But the, you never see the Pharisees agreeing with anybody, right? Nicodemus is furious when things happen, and you see, you know, they're constantly chasing after Jesus. And see, they never want to confess or admit the reality that Jesus could potentially be the Messiah. And for us today in modern, the same is that we would say, hey, I'm not the one who's wrong here. You are. We all are. Number five, you may be a Pharisee when when you're challenged, you get angry and offended. And that really goes back to number four. No one is always right. Number six, the system of religion benefits you more than you benefit the system. In other words, you're a taker. That you're not giving into the system. You're not, you're not giving to the church. You're just taking. And then number seven, You might be a Pharisee if you serve on the front lines, but not behind the scenes. That you want to have a title, and you'll serve. You see, Jesus was very specific when he talked about the Pharisees. And I'll read it to you since we don't have it yet on the board, but here's what he said in Matthew 23. The reference is on your handout. He says this, Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do, uh, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with a finger. They do all of their deeds to be seen by others, for they make phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. Look, here's the difference. The biggest difference between the Pharisees and the sinners that Jesus hung out with is that how they felt about themselves. That's the next blank on your handout. You see, we talked about this a few weeks ago. If you're not the worst sinner that you know, then you have a problem. And that's, the, that's what we see with Pharisees in Jesus' day, is everyone else was wrong, and they were always right. And so the Pharisees, they were more focused on gathering, getting together, than actually growing They were more focused on rules than actually having a relationship, both with God and with those that were around them. They were more interested in the belief system instead of actually living out their faith. Tonight, the scary reality is that we can be just like them. That we can exist in a belief system that we adhere to because it makes us feel good about ourselves. This was true for the Pharisees, most definitely, and it can easily be true for us.
You see, I think this is the next blank on your handout. If we fail to understand how spiritually impressive the Pharisees were, we will remain blind to the danger of becoming just like them. You see, the goal that Jesus has for you is that, not, that, that you wouldn't have perfect attendance here at church. The goal is not that you would read every single letter of the Bible that you possess. But it's that the Bible would possess you. That the words of God would change you. And so oftentimes, as I've said and we're about to dive into, that at the blink of an eye, with one step, we can be where God wants us to be or miles away. And so I want to challenge you and to encourage you with just a couple of things tonight. You see, every one of us is just one step away. And so here's what we're going to look at. We're, number one, we are one step away from, next blank on your handout, from stepping back. From stepping back. We all, every one of us, have unaligned faith and incomplete understanding. There are things about God I do not understand. And I really like it that way. Because I don't want to serve a God that I understand. I don't want to serve a God just like Asaph wrote wrote in Psalm 50. He says, you thought you were one just like me. No, I don't. And I don't want to be. You see, the reality is every one of us has incomplete belief systems. That there's things that you believe and there's things that I believe that are wrong. And if we build our faith based on the things that I desire to be true instead of what God's Word says to be true, I'm living in the danger zone. You see, the reality is the Bible teaches that sin is crouching at the door seeking who it may devour. And the reality for you and the reality for me is that in a blink of an eye, in a second's notice, sin will take any and every advantage that it can to overwhelm me, to overcome me, to defeat me, and according to John 10, ultimately to kill me. Same plans for you. And so we have this We're on the brink of, I can be so close to where God wants me to be, and in one second, I can step back away from where God wants me to be. You see, we all have blind spots, next blank on your handout, and sin spots. Every one of us. And that's what I was saying earlier. If you don't have someone in your life that you love enough, and that you trust enough that can say, hey, look, Nathan, I love you, man, but this is messed up in your life. If you don't have someone that you trust enough to say that to you, and you don't punch them back, you are not asking for what God wants the best in your life. You, you don't, because you're going to see yourself in, for, through rose-colored glasses. And so you've got to have someone that can tell you, just like I said, Pharisees, when they were challenged, they got angry. They got defensive. But here's the truth. We all have sin spots in our life. Luke 22, verse 31. This is what the Bible says. Simon, Simon, behold, Jesus is talking here. Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Come on, really? 
I mean, we know the end of the story, but come on, Peter. But doesn't it make you think of the modern-day church person? Man, I love Jesus. I got a Jesus sticker. Man, I love Jesus. I got 14 Bibles at my house. But yet you turn the television on and look at culture. We're not influencing anybody. What are we changing? Right? You know, we, we parade these things to be true because Peter said, look, Jesus, man, I'm ready to go with you to prison. They put us in the same cell. I love Jesus. I'll die for you, Jesus. And yet, and yet, Jesus says, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Jesus said, Peter, don't get ahead of yourself there, pal. It's not exactly how this is going to turn out. You see, the truth is, the enemy is constantly at work to derail you. And none of us are immune to his attempts. None of us are capable of defeating him on our own. It's deception to believe that. Paul famously quotes this reality in Romans 7 where he says, the things that I don't want to do, I do, right? And he says, the things that we desire to do, we don't do. Paul, arguably the greatest Christian ever, says, man, I want to do what God wants me to do all the time, but I, I don't. And there's things that I don't want to do that I get tricked into doing. Here's the slope. How do you begin to fade into stepping back? What does, that, what does that look like? Well, I think it's a couple things. Number one, should be next blank on your handout. When our attendance doesn't translate into association. When our attendance doesn't translate into association. In other words, that we say that we're a part of attending the things of God, but it doesn't cause us to associate more with God. Does that make sense? You see, in New Testament times, being a part of the church meant giving your life to the church. Many people lost families, they lost property, they lost jobs. When they said, I, I commit to follow Jesus and the Roman Empire, it was a big deal. Every part of who you were, every part of what you did revolved around Jesus. Remember two weeks ago, I believe it was, I preached that the gospel changes the way we see things and it changes what we do. That is New Testament Christianity. However, many people today attend church on a regular basis, yet their faith has no impact on their day-to-day life. None N-O-N-E, none, zero, zilch, nada, none of the disciples were present at the crucifixion. John came at the end, zero, zero, zero. They were at weddings. Think about it. They were at weddings with Jesus. They were there when Jesus fed the 5,000. They absolutely loved it when Jesus would heal people. And yet, when it came to Golgotha, they were absent. Think about it. These guys spent three years with Jesus. Day in, day out, travel, tents, napping, serving, laughing, loving, I mean, all of it, three and a half years, every single day. And yet, when the rubber met the road, gone, out, absent. This is what the Bible says in Luke 22. 
Verse 54, he says, Then they seized him, and they led him away, which of course is Jesus, and they brought him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Get this picture in your mind. They're in the courtyard, the mezzanine area. Peter sees the arrest of Jesus, of course, in the garden. He's the one who whipped out the sword and cut off Malchus's ear. Jesus picked it up, put it back on. We're not doing that. So they start to lead Jesus away. Peter is way back here, and he's kind of figuring out where they're going. Of course, there weren't many places to take him. And so he's following way back. They get him in uh, to the, to the uh, courtyard area. So what does Peter do? He sits way back, and he, he, he's kind of hanging back in the back. It says they kindled a, a fire in the middle of the courtyard, and they sat down together. Peter sat with them. Think about this. Those who were against Jesus, help, help, me, help me imagine this, all right? They were against Jesus. And so here they're bringing Jesus to accuse him. And there's no one there who's for Jesus. And those who are accusing Jesus and those who showed up for a show build a fire. And what does Peter do? He joins them. He built a fire. He's, the Bible, word for word, sat down among them. Christian, can I ask you tonight, have you sat down amongst the culture Is that what your life looks like? That the world is denying Jesus at every breath. And yet as believers we say, I'm just going to stand back and see how this thing turns out. Am I wrong? A servant girl in verse 56, seeing him as he sat in in the light and looking closely at him, which is Peter, she said, "Hey, hey, this man, this man also was with him. But Peter Denied it. What did he say? He said, woman, I I don't know him. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. After an interval of about an hour, look at the time details here in Matthew. I'm sorry, in Luke. Look at the time details. They built a fire. They sat down. That takes some time. A little later, then an interval of an hour. In other words, he's had time to think about what he's doing. Okay? An hour later, still another insisted, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. They now are beginning to identify him by his nationality. What does that mean for us? Here's what it means for us, that when we sit somewhere long enough, we begin to identify with those around us. And Peter had sat so long that they could even identify his nationality. He says, Peter says, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and he looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. You see, identifying with the culture always leads to denying Jesus. Identifying with the culture always leads to denying 
Jesus. You can sit in the courtyard the rest of your life, and you know what's going to happen? You're going to look just like them. You see, when the things that we say and the places that we go and the way that we act blends into culture, we have bowed down. We have submitted. You see, when you abide by preference instead of by principle, you have bowed down. When your actions are dictated by the response of other people, you have bowed down. This is what it looks like to step back. Look, Jesus, I don't want you to misunderstand me tonight. Jesus doesn't call his followers to revolt. He calls us to live radically different in light of what he has done for us. And what does that look like? Well, I think it's very simple. It's that we would allow our attendance to be marked by our association with Jesus. In other words, Jesus changes people. And when I go to Jesus things, I become more like Jesus. When I spend time with Jesus, I become more like Jesus. I was talking to our D group tonight, and this is what I told my D group. I said, if you want to be who God wants you to be, you got to spend time with people who are trying to be who God wants them to be. You want to spend time with God? Spend time with people who are spending time with God. Right? That's how you grow. You don't come to church to earn salvation. You come to church because you've been granted salvation. You see, oftentimes, not only does attendance is not marked by association, but association doesn't lead to action. Next blank on your handout. Our association doesn't lead to action. Often our actions represent the crowd more than they represent the cross. It doesn't lead to action. It's because we, we are lulled to sleep into believing that if we just associate ourselves with Jesus, then we're good. We were talking to a small group this last week about uh, the message Sunday morning about the Holy Spirit. And, and I, told, I told our small group this. Many people are satisfied with the proximity of God and not the possession of God. The proximity. That it's okay to be close enough. I see God working in your life. If I just get close enough, it's just like Peter. The girl built a fire and he just got close enough. Right? He should have been the fire. Like what we want to believe is that we're in that courtyard and man, we're taking everybody out. We're like a UFC fighter, you know. Like we're knocking everybody down because we're pro-Jesus and this is not how he's going out. But the reality is, in the blink of an eye, in one step, every one of us are sitting with that little girl who built a fire, and we're saying, I have no idea who he is. You see, our belief systems, if left unchecked, lead to our expectations unmet. You see, Peter thought that Jesus would become the king. The nation of Israel thought the Messiah would reign, right? What is the result of these unmet expectations? Well, in verse 54, it says, They seized Jesus and led him away, and they brought him to the high priest's house, as I mentioned in the very first verse. But Peter followed at a distance. He followed at a distance. That's what 
Christianity, the version that we have today, is attempting to do with Jesus is to follow Him at a distance. That the culture is overwhelming the church, small c, and saying, look what's happening. We're defining reality. We're defining truth. And yet, Christians are doing what? Well, let's just see how this thing works out. Let's just see how this thing works out. Let's stay comfortable. Let's build a fire. Let's sit down. Let's spend a little time. Let's see how this thing works out. You see, we're one step away from stepping back. But the opposite is also true. I don't know about you, and I certainly hope it's true, but I often pray for our nation, and I often pray for our leaders, because they're one step away from being who God wants them to be. One step. You see, if you're here tonight, and your life is not where you feel like God wants you to be in Christ, you're one step away. You're one step away. You see, this story is about to encourage the socks off of you. Because every one of us, no matter how far we've gone, no matter how long we've sat in the courtyard, we are just one step away from being who God wants us to be. You see, number two, we're one step away from stepping up. Every one of us are in danger that we can step back, that we can take a step back from where God wants us to be. But in the same breath, we're one step away from stepping up. In Luke 23, verse 50, there's a story that all four Gospels talk about. You you should have these references on your handout. If not, write these down. In Luke 23, 50, there's a story that every single one of the Gospel writers thought important enough to write about. And here's what they said. Luke says this, very uh, attention to detail. He says, now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, Sanhedrin, Pharisee. He was good, the Bible says, and he was righteous. Good description, right? Good epitaph. Write that on your tombstone. Matt was good, and he was righteous. That, I'd say that was a win, right? So here's Joseph of Arimathea, and Luke says he's good and he's righteous. Matthew also writes about him. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 57, Matthew says, when it was evening after Jesus, of course, had been crucified, he says, when it's evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea. His name was Joseph, who also was a disciple. So Matthew gives a little bit different description. Now, Matthew's a tax collector, so, of course, he's going to talk about money, right? And so he says, this guy's rich. Mark chapter 15 Mark says this. He says, Joseph of Arimathea, now we get another description. He's a respected member of the council who also himself was looking for the kingdom of God. He took courage and he went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. So here's what we know about Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph was good. He was righteous. He was rich. He was wealthy. He was respected. I looked up some of these words in the, in the original language. You know, rich means rich. So you don't have to look that up. Respected, it means desirable. Uh, they use the word winsome. Winsome. In other words, he easily won favor with people. 
So he was likable. Here's someone who had all that the world could offer. (coughs) He was respected. He was righteous. The Bible says he was a disciple. But interestingly enough, he's not someone who's listed in the hall of faith. Hebrews chapter 11. Here's all the people in Hebrews chapter 11. The Hebrews writer says, these people were awesome. They had incredible faith. Joseph's not one of them. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that he uh, was a secret, quote, disciple. So here's someone that seems to be in the shadows, okay? Someone that we would assume, based on what we just talked about, would be sitting with Peter in the courtyard. Someone who's not outwardly spoken about their faith. Someone who is curious about who Jesus is. Someone who hasn't quite stepped into who God called him to be. You see, the Bible says in Luke 23, verse 51, that Joseph had not consented to their decision. So the council, remember he's a part of it, and they had a vote, apparently, and Joseph didn't vote, not for what they wanted. And it says that he was looking for the kingdom of God. How do we step up? You start by looking for the kingdom of God. He was someone who was looking. Undoubtedly, I want you to think about this. Now, this is not millions and millions of people back then. There there weren't just tons and tons of people, okay? And so it's possible, highly likely, in my imagination, it's for sure, Matt Davis' version, right, that Joseph knew who Peter was. Think about it. He's on the Sanhedrin. There are 70-something guys on the Sanhedrin, and, and they made all the rules. And Jesus has been causing a stir for three years. And there's only 12 guys that are following Jesus around. And Peter was one of the most prominent. So in my imagination, Joseph knew who Peter was. He had heard the message of Jesus before. Joseph had seen Peter and the other disciples with Jesus. Maybe even had a conversation. I don't know that. I imagine it to be true. And the worldview of the Sanhedrin member who was a Pharisee, who was wealthy, who was well-liked, who the Bible said was good, this guy was rocked by the declaration that Jesus might very well be the Messiah. And so he began to look. He began to explore. He began to ask questions. Joseph wanted to know, is this true. And so much so that he believed it, when no one else did, Joseph went and he asked for the body of Jesus after Jesus was crucified to give Jesus the proper burial. You don't see the disciples doing that. These are guys who walked with Jesus for three and a half years. This is a guy from Peter who said, Jesus, I'll go to prison and the grave with you. And yet, not a single one showed up and took the body of Jesus off the cross. None of them. None of them. But Joseph did. Jesus said something, did something. Joseph heard something about Jesus that stirred something in him that could not be satisfied. 
You see, that's the desire for me in my own walk with God. It's definitely the desire that I have for my family, and I certainly desire that for you. That your walk with Jesus wouldn't be marked by association or attendance, but that it would be stirred by the very words of Jesus. You don't need me to tell you what to do. You need to do what Jesus has already told us to do. Right? So oftentimes, we cower in the shadows. Again, Jesus is not calling. The, the message tonight is not to go out and, and, and you know, rage against culture. That is not what Jesus called us to do. Jesus called us to make a difference right where we are. And what did Joseph do? He made a difference right where he was. He began to look around and he said, you know, in spite of everything that happened, I believe that Jesus was actually the Messiah. You know, the, the earthquake and everything going dark, you know, maybe it had something to do with it. But he believed it, right? And so what did he do? He took action. He took action. So how can we be like Joseph tonight? How can we make sure that we take a step forward, that we're intentional about our walk with Jesus, that we are not satisfied with sitting in the courtyard or building a fire or waiting for hours or following from a distance, but that we can be intentional and purposeful in saying, no, I want to step up for Jesus. I want to be counted. I want to be faithful. I want to be who God wants me to be. Instead of being defined by what's acceptable. Well, I think there's a few things that you can do tonight. The first thing is always be open to truth. Always be open to truth. Joseph's entire life, he had been raised to believe that the Pharisees were authority and they superseded the written word. And anything that they come up with, even if it was 613 laws, was gospel. And he believed that, and he trained for that, and he supported that, and he defended that. And yet, Jesus shows up on the scene, and all of a sudden, what does Joseph do? He says, you know what? It's possible. It's possible this could be true. It's possible. You see, the world in fact, doesn't want truth. In fact, what the world is, is enamored with facts. So much so that most of your social media feeds have fact checkers. And anything that's posted on those sites, true, false, or indifferent, are checked against the facts. Right? Not truth. There's a difference. Not truth, facts. Think about it. This is what Matt Chandler said here recently. He said, facts are things that we can see, we can touch, we can taste, we can smell, we can hear. Truth lies underneath all of that. Truth, he says, orientates, uh, I'm sorry, orients reality. Truth orients reality. Facts only point to a specific time or place or action. What we need to be more enamored with is not the facts, but the truth. You see, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
Our job is not to be identified or indoctrinated or associated with culture, but it's that we would be infiltrated by the truth. You see, the Bible says, John 17, 17, sanctify them by your word. Your word is truth. Be open to truth. That in fact, you may believe something that isn't true. That in fact, you may be doing something that is not leading you to godliness because it's tradition or preference in your life instead of absolute truth. There's only one absolute truth in your life. And if you mind the Scriptures, if you spend time with God, you will discover that. It is not hidden. There's 66 books that declare the reality. That's why the Bible is the all-time number one best-selling book of all time. It's not because it's filled with facts. Guinness's World Book Records is really good at that. It's because it's true. It's true. Be open to the possibility. Be looking. Be aware. Be curious. Jesus, I'm measuring what I'm seeing by your word. Show me the truth, God, of your word. And what Joseph did, in my mind, is Joseph said, you say you're the Messiah. I'm going back to Isaiah. I'm going back to Old Testament prophecy. And I'm going to read. And you know what? He was versed in that. He knew the Old Testament well. The Torah, the first five books, the Pentateuch. He was very well versed in all of those things. And Joseph, in my mind, went back. And hour after hour after hour, is this the Messiah? Can it be true? Is it possible that this actually is God in the flesh? And he believed it to be true. And by faith, he received it. Be open to the truth. Number two, Joseph was courageous. Be courageous. Mark 15, 43, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who also himself was looking for the kingdom of God, took courage. You know what it's going to take for you to follow Jesus? Courage. Courage. It means to courageously venture forward by putting fear behind and embracing the fruit that lies ahead. That is the literal definition of that word, courage. To courageously venture forward by putting fear behind you and embracing the fruit that lies ahead. Just as with Peter and with Joseph, the culture will continuously and relentlessly attempt to draw you in and to get you to vote with the crowd. And yet Jesus said, broad is the way that leads to destruction and narrow is the way that leads to life. You see, in order for you and for me to take a step towards Jesus, it's going to require courage. You have to vote with truth. His name is Jesus. So be open to truth. Number two, be courageous. Lastly tonight, reset your expectations. You knew we had to get to reset at some point, right? I mean, it's the name of the series. Reset 
your expectations. Don't box God in. Your memory verse this week in Ephesians chapter 3 is Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20, right? That God can do exceedingly and abundantly more than we ask or think. Do you believe that? Right? That we would reset our expectations, that we wouldn't say, God, here's what I want you to do, but say, God, what do you want to do? God, here's what I would like to do, but instead say, God, what would you like for me to do? God, where would you like me to go? God, what would you like me to do? God, how would you like for me to be involved in this? What is it that you're doing, God? I want to be a part of that. Reset your expectations. Not that God couldn't use you, but that God can use you. Not that you've stepped back for too long, but that there's still a chance for you to step up. You see, reset your expectations. Not that God would do what you think you should do, but that you would be okay with God being God. See, the reality is that none of us are perfect, and any one of us can fall at any moment. When Jesus arrived on the scene, God's purpose was not to save the nation so they could disobey Him again and fall back into slavery once more. He's already seen that movie. Jesus wanted them to be saved for all time from their biggest enemy, from our biggest enemy. And it's not the Roman Empire. And it's not culture today. It's sin. That's why Jesus died on the cross, is to free you and me from the slavery of sin. You see, the whole Scripture teaches that the greatest enemy to God's people is internal. It is sin. Peter knew the right thing but he did the wrong thing. Peter knew the right thing, but he did the wrong thing. Joseph, well, he knew the wrong thing, but he did the right thing. Joseph knew the wrong thing, but he did the right thing. You see, the truth is, you haven't stayed You haven't been walking with God forever. How long you've been walking with God because you're good. And you haven't failed because you're bad. The reality is every one of us all live in daily desperation of the power of God to rest upon our thoughts and our actions and ultimately our lives. And so my desire for me, our desire for each other, is that we would prayerfully be on guard from the danger of stepping back, but yet boldly align our hearts with the beauty of being called to take a step forward towards Jesus. That we would be on guard from the danger of stepping back, But yet we would boldly align our hearts with the beauty and the reality that we are called to take a step forward. I don't know what it is that God is calling you to, but I know He's calling you. I don't know how long you've been sitting in the courtyard. I don't know how much you think you've done that can't be used. But the reality is, if God can use Joseph, 
He can use any of us. I've been so encouraged this week by the life of Joseph. What many people look at Joseph and say, man, that guy was hiding in the shadows. Man, that guy was, he wasn't following Jesus closely. He's just like Peter. No, when it mattered the most, Joseph stepped up. And my prayer for me, and hopefully you would say the same for you, is that when it matters the most, that through the power of God, I'll step up. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you for Joseph. God, thank you for Peter. God, thank you for how in different ways, at different times, we act in different ways. Because it teaches us and reminds us that we are imperfect. That God, in spite of that, you love us. And I don't know why, but you constantly call us to closer walks with you. In spite of ourselves, in spite of our shortcomings, in spite of our sin. So God, tonight, would you encourage us with your word? Would you embolden us with your truth? Would you give us courage in our faith that we would walk with you? That we wouldn't run, that we would just take a step. One day at a time, one step at a time, just as your word says that you are a light unto our path, that one step at a time, God, we would walk with you, towards you, for you, for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have a great night. You've got about nine minutes before Awana is out.